Good morning. I'm Matt Fender, and it's a pleasure to be with you here this morning. We're going to be picking up week five of our Sunday school class on presuppositional apologetics. Um, Let me uh, pray for us, and then we'll get started. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for allowing us to assemble here this morning in your name to study your word, study your doctrine, and learn how we might better defend the faith as you have commanded us to. We pray that you will be with us here this morning. Help us to to sharpen our minds and focus and pay attention. Help me to speak in a way that is clear and present your your doctrine and the truths of your scriptures in a way that is um, winsome to everyone involved. We pray also for the children who are being instructed upstairs. We pray that each and every one of them would come to reach a day when he (laughs) would grow up to say he never knew a day when he was not trusting in Christ for his salvation. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so um, we've hopefully improved the computer projector situation this week. As you can see, we have a a shorter cable that hopefully will have less loss, and we'll be able to put all the slides up here clearly. Um, What I want to do today is we're going to do some review. And you notice I've done a lot of review every week, and that's because this material is not easy. And it's not not always something that you just catch in a snap. So we're going to keep going back over it and back over it. We're going to do some review, and then we're going to spend some time on the problem of evil. Last week I had some questions about the problem of evil, so I did some work on it, and hopefully I can give you some things that will be helpful. Um, I don't think there's a 100% satisfactory answer, but I'm going to sort of tell you what the kind of reformed presuppositional answers are. We're going to delve into the scriptures a little bit, and hopefully um, everybody will be better off when they left than when they got here. And then finally, I have some more tweets, some more atheist tweets that we will practice on um, as much time as we have at the end. So... This was from last week. This was a quote from the internet. Presuppositional apologetics, in a nutshell, we don't conclude God, we start with God. And we show them that if you don't start with God, your worldview is absurd. That's Psi 10, Bruggen Kate. Um, I think that is a a fabulous, pithy summary of what we do in presuppositional apologetics. We we expose the worldview, we compare and contrast it with the Christian worldview, and we show that the secularist worldview is irrational and absurd. So, Um, We start with this approach with the authority of Scripture, right? We must understand, as we do this, each person's ultimate authority, and our ultimate authority as Christians is without question got to be the Word of God. It's the Bible. The Bible is true. And if you're going to pick and choose from the Bible, then you're no longer making the Bible your ultimate authority. You're making yourself the ultimate authority since you're the one that's doing the picking. So if the Bible is your ultimate authority, then you got to take it as a whole and say, this is my presupposition, this is my ultimate authority. Now, you can argue about what it means. You can apply different hermeneutics to it and say, well, I think this scripture should be interpreted this way and this means that. Yes, that's all, that's all fair game, assuming you believe in the integrity of the scripture, that it is what it purports to be, that it is inerrant, and it is true. And there is a lot of bad teaching out there, a lot of bad commentaries that don't believe that, right? I, when, I'm, when I'm prepping to teach Bible, I will from time to time open a commentary, and the guy will start telling me about the, the various different texts that he thinks were cobbled together to form this book, and all the different times it was revised and edited, and uh, as soon as I get to that part, I just close that book, push that one away, don't need to hear any more of that, right? Because we're not coming from the same place in terms of how we read the scriptures. But the scripture is our ultimate authority, and for the unbeliever, he who denies the scriptures, the ultimate authority is ultimately himself. So that's our most basic contrast between Christianity and everything else. 
Now, some of you, no doubt, are thinking, and I've said this before, well, what about the unbeliever who believes in some other transcendental authority, some other religion, and says, well, you know, I believe that the, uh, you know, the Koran is the ultimate authority. Uh, and the answer to that is, that's still you being your own ultimate authority, because unlike the Christian, we know that you don't actually have a divine revelation that that book is true. We know the scriptures are true because of the testimony of the Holy Spirit, right? And so there, 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 there is 100% for sure no supernatural revelation to somebody that the Koran is true. Why? Because it isn't true. All right. Um, worldviews, right? We talk a lot about worldviews when we do this approach. What is a worldview? It's a network of presuppositions, right? And what's a presupposition? Presupposition is the, the basic assumptions by which we live our lives, things that can't be proved by natural science that work together that, that allow us to interpret and relate to the things around us and the experiences that we have. Um, examples of presuppositions are th- things like the physical world is going to work the same way tomorrow that it works today, that when you rolled out of bed this morning, your feet were going to hit the floor and you were going to float up to the ceiling that you can trust your reason, that you can trust your memory. These are all basic presuppositions by which we live our lives. And, on, and remember, unbelievers really have these presuppositions too. They just have no basis for them. So part of what we're looking to do is to point out, well, how is it, sir, that you think you can trust your reason? How is it you think your memory is reliable? And absent the word of God and absent God's revelation, the answer is you have no basis for that. So, again, we're looking to expose that worldview, point out its inconsistencies, and contrast it with a Christian worldview. So, well, what do you need to have a worldview, right? If I want to have a worldview, what are the parts of it that I need for it to be complete? Well, we talked about some some basic uh, philosophical terms that are used to kind of parse this kind of stuff, and we said, well, you need a metaphysics, you need an epistemology, and you need an ethics, right? And so, what do those words mean again? Well, metaphysics is the big questions of life. Where did, the world, where did the world come from? How did it start? What is man's purpose? And where is history going? And the Bible gives us clear answers to all those things. Um, what about epistemology? Epistemology is the branch of philosophy that deals with knowledge and how we know things. How can you know anything? How can you trust that what you think you perceive with your senses and process with your reason are real? And so epistemology gives us that. And the Bible, when we start with the Bible, we know that we can trust our senses and we can trust our reason. We know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, right? We know that our, that our mind has been renewed in Christ, and therefore our thoughts and our reason are reliable. So next, the transcendental argument for God. Um, what does that mean? Well, we talked about this the last couple of weeks Remember, we're seeking to defend the faith by exposing, you know, the, the worldview of the unbeliever, looking at those presuppositions and showing how they're irrational and absurd. And one of the ways that we do that is with this transcendental argument for God. And we do that by starting with any item of experience or belief whatsoever that the other person has and asking questions about what would need to be true in order for that experience to be meaningful or real. And one really easy way to do that is arguing from morality, right? But here's, here's how the, here's the slide shows you how it works. What's something you believe, and how do you know? And we can just keep asking those questions. We call it peeling the onion. Um, well, what led you to that conclusion? What's that based on? Why do you believe that? What's your, what's your authority for that proposition? We keep asking those kinds of questions, right? And um, when we do it with morality, 
it becomes very practical and something that almost anybody can understand because everybody has um, ethical and moral beliefs and no, nobody's going to walk around and say, I don't believe there's any morality. Everybody can do whatever he wants. And even if you say that, you don't really mean it. Um, because you, we, nobody, we, no, no two people could live together if that were the case, right? We certainly couldn't have a large and complex society because everybody has basic ideas of right and wrong. And remember, why does everybody have basic ideas of right and wrong? Somebody? It's in our hearts. It is written on your heart by God because we are creatures. We were made to worship God. His law was written on the face of creation, and it is written on our hearts. And the only reason everybody doesn't admit that is because of our fallen nature and our rebellion against God. So never forget, when you were doing apologetics, when you were doing evangelism, when you were talking to that skeptic, to that unbeliever, he knows God is real. He knows God exists. He knows God. He knows that God has a holy law. He knows that He has broken it. He is a sinner. He doesn't want to admit it, perhaps, until God changes his heart and allows him to have faith. But there are no genuine atheists. It just doesn't exist. We know this as a matter, as you know, from Scripture. We know it as a matter of authority. So everybody has some kind of standard, some some kind of standard of morality, right? And any any approach of to morality that isn't based on transcendental authority, that isn't based on an appeal to God or something like God, is ultimately meaningless. It ultimately begs the question of why, by what authority? Because if, I, if, I, if someone says to you, it's wrong to murder, and you say, oh, well, I see that you're making a, a normative moral statement. You're making an ought statement. You're saying everybody ought to believe like this. Then by what authority? Right? Is that just your opinion? Because it's just your opinion. Well, why should your opinion be more important than my opinion? We're just disagreeing on something, but that's, that's not a moral statement. A moral statement is saying, you know, for, for all people at all times and all places, it's wrong to murder. Okay. Well, why? And for the Christian, the answer is simple. God says so. Sixth commandment. It's in his word. I know his word is true. So therefore, I know it's wrong to murder. Easy. Done. For the unbeliever, he's going to have to resort to something like, well, you know, the civil law, uh, it's illegal to murder. Okay, so is that our standard of morality, whatever 51% of the legislature voted for? Does that make it right or wrong? I think we can all pretty easily come up with some counterexamples to that. Just pick something they don't like. Oh, well, how about, you know, African chattel slavery in the South? Do, do you like that? Was that moral because the legislature said it was okay? How about abortion? Pick something, no matter what it is. I mean, you're talking to, you can find something that the civil government has said is okay that they don't like, right? That's no, that's no standard of morality, right? Morality is by its, by its nature transcendental. It's by its nature universal. And so any kind of ethical or moral system that doesn't have some kind of outside appeal is ultimately meaningless, right? Um, when you, and we, we dealt with some of these different moral relativist sort of claims. Um, I don't believe in absolute morality, it's about which right and wrong for me. You have your morality and I have mine. Or don't impose your morality on me, right? I hope by now you all see how absurd that is, right? It should, if it takes you more than two questions to expose the fact that that is absurd, then I have absolutely failed in this class. Because you say, really? So you're only bound by the moral principles that you yourself believe in? Does that apply to me too? 
So what if I want to shoot you in the head and take your wallet and I think that's right? Would that be okay? Mic drop, right? What are they going to say? Um, that, just, that just obviously isn't true. So all moral, moral truths, by their nature, by the nature of what makes a moral proposition, an ethical rule, it's either universal or it's not an ethical or moral rule. It's, you know, it's just an opinion. Everybody got that? All right. So how do you do this? How do you do a transcendental argument for God based on arguing for morality? Well, it's very simple. Just pick something that the person you're talking to believes in or holds dear. And we talked about bumper stickers and tweets and you know whatever. And it could be just whatever came up naturally in conversation. Open up the newspaper. Oh my gosh, I can't believe it. The state of Tennessee passed a law to prevent gender-affirming care for minors. Oh, really? So what do you think about that? Well, that's horrible. That's immoral. Oh, really? So let's talk a little more about that. So is it, you think it's morally wrong for the government to pass a law that prevents, you know, children from going and having themselves mutilated and sterilized? Is that, is that, that what you believe? Well, that's not what I, okay, well, let's talk about it. Okay, so that's what you think. Well, what's your, what's the moral rule that leads you to that conclusion? Well, everyone should have a right to self-determination, decide, you know, who they want to be. Uh, well, okay, well, really, what's, what led you to that conclusion? What's the, what's, the, what's the reason that that's a universal moral rule? And there, there's nothing to say, right? Unless they're going to go back to some kind of transcendental authority, it's going to come back to some kind of version of either that's my opinion or that's the opinion of some other people. But it's just meaningless unless you can appoint to some kind of universal, unless you can appeal to some, something outside yourself. And so when you're talking to somebody who denies the transcendental, somebody who's a materialist, somebody who doesn't believe that there's anything other than what they can see, feel, and touch... And by the way, they can't explain to you why they can trust what they think they see, feel, and touch, but that's that aside, um, then there's necessarily no moral authority for them to appeal to. So this is incredibly powerful and, and relatively easy to do, right? Um, sometimes, we talked about this, you can find common ground. Sometimes the moral proposition in question is something that you can agree with, you know? And you can say, oh, well, you know, you, you think that we, it's good to care for the poor, well, you know, I agree. I agree we should care for the poor. Well, Jesus said we should care for the poor. Let's, let's, why don't we delve into the Sermon on the Mount and we can learn all about it. Um, I've got clear biblical reason why i got I got to do that. What's your reason? Well, I have compassion. Or, well, you know, the economic system is rigged against people and it's all about class warfare and intersectionality and blah, 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 blah whatever. Um, oh, okay, well, you know, why, why do you think that? What's, what's your authority for that? So you th- you th- you're not just saying that you want to care for the poor. You think you're, you're making a, a statement that everyone ought to care for the poor or that the government ought to come around with guns and take taxes from us and use that to give money to the poor. Is that what you're saying? Well, why is that? What's the, what's the reason that, that should be a universal, that everyone should be compelled to do that? And, you know, sometimes you might get an answer that's not a moral answer at all. You might get a practical answer. You might get something, well, society would be a better place if there, if there were a few, if, if we raise the standard of living of the poorest people, and you know that would be that would be good. So this is sort of an appeal to the good, right? This is saying, well, you'll actually be better off if you take care of the poor. Okay, well, I can see you're making a pragmatic sort of argument. That's not a moral argument. That's just sort of a preference, right? Like you think it would be better to live in a society where there was, you know, money given to the poor. Well, okay, that's your opinion. Get your checkbook out. Why? Why should I be compelled? To, to do that? What is the moral principle behind what you're saying? Um, so anyway, that's just sort of how that, how that kind of works out. 
Um, I think I already covered this. Yeah, okay, last week we talked about this text from Proverbs 26, verses 4 and 5. Answer not a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. And, you know, the first time you look at this, your eyes sort of cross. But upon <laughs> digging, digging into it, um, it's very clear and very powerful, right? So first, the first one in verse 4, we're not going to assume what the fool holds to be true, lest we be like him himself. So this is why we don't concede the not-God proposition. We don't have a conversation based upon the skeptic's presuppositions. We're not going to sit down and say, oh, let's be neutral. There's no God. You prove me there's God. No, no, no. I'm not, I'm not doing that. I'm not playing that game. That's blasphemy. God exists. God is real, and you know it. And there's absolutely no reason that I would concede that proposition in talking to you. But then, secondly... We're going to answer the fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. We're going to give him an answer. We're not just going to let him walk around, you know, spouting whatever foolishness he's spouting. We're going to have the conversation, and we're going to delve into it. So, um, anyway, that's what I think we do with that. And keep that in mind as we go through the material this morning. As I was preparing for today, I ran across a, a talk on the Internet where this, uh, this scripture was referenced. And so I wanted to do it with you this morning. Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 10. Um, and I commend all of Colossians to you, because it's, it's very powerful in this regard. Um, starting with verse 6. Therefore, as you received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. Okay, well, that's nice, Matt. What does that have to do with apologetics? That's to do with our worldview and what it is we know to be true. It has to do with where we ground our authority. It has to do with what is, the, what is, the, what is our one true thing, our philosopher's stone, and the answer is it is Christ, and it is his word. I'm not um, a Greek scholar, so I'm not going to try to give you the structure of the text or anything here. But just look at how it starts in verse 6 and 7, right? Walk in him, rooted and built up in him. You need to be rooted in Christ, established in your faith. That is where you are grounded. That is where your worldview is grounded, right? So start there. And then in contrast, in verse 8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Right? So this is in contrast. And note that it doesn't say, avoid all philosophy, philosophy's bad. Right? It's warning us off against a specific type of philosophy. It's warning us off against philosophy that's rooted in empty deceit, human tradition, and the elemental spirits of the world. It's, it, so it doesn't mean that we can't do Christian philosophy, but if we're doing a philosophy that's not grounded in Christ, that's not based upon the basic presupposition the Bible is true, then it's empty, and it's hollow, and it's liable to deceive us, right? And then as this continues in verse 9 and 10, For in him the whole fullness of the deity dwells bodily, and you've been filled in him who is the head of all rule and authority. So we start and end with the authority of Christ, and we're warned off against philosophy that is not grounded in Christ. So as we think about as we think about our thinking, right, and our and what we hold to be true and how we ground our worldview, this gives us what we need 
uh, in order to accomplish that. Questions about that? Comments? Yes, sir. You can ask anything you like, and I'll do my best to answer. All right, well, let's take that one first. And I, I'm going to answer it, and I'm going to defer to others in the room who probably know more than me about it. But so, why, so based on my, my comment earlier that I, start, I will typically reject a commentary if it suggests that the Scripture isn't what it purports to be, that it wasn't written by a single author at a single time, and by the way, that might not apply to something like the Book of Psalms or Proverbs. But, but if we're ta- but if we're talking about something that purports to be a history, right, that it you know it is what it supports to be, or wouldn't be true. And, and so the answer is that it's just that, right? Because I believe Scripture is inerrant as an article of faith. Anybody who starts by saying it's not inerrant, right, by saying it was edited later and these pieces were sort of fitted together, right, that undermines the authority of Scripture, and therefore I necessarily reject it because my basic presupposition is Scripture is true. And we didn't even really see any of this until like maybe the late 18th, beginning of the 19th century, when you get the German higher critical movement, where these guys, that they start getting their PhDs by going around and writing books and articles, um, saying, well, you know, the, this, the book of Genesis isn't really true. It wasn't really, it couldn't have been written by Moses. Here, here's, here's the three times it was edited, or, you know, the, the book of Judges is a late polemic that was used to justify the Davidic kingship, and blah, 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 blah. And this part at the end was cobbled on later, and, you know, they start saying all that kind of stuff. So it, the short answer is, I believe the scripture is what it purports to be, otherwise it can't be inerrant. Would anyone else care to comment on that? Okay, seeing none. Give me your next question. Oh, an interesting ethical question. Okay, so if the person who's in favor of gender-affirming care, or we 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 would call child mutilation, uh, this is being recorded and put on the internet, so I just want to be clear, um, we're we're to come to, to... were to say to me, um, how much force are you willing to use to stop this, and what would your basis be for that? Um, well, I, first of all, that's, a, that, that's sort of a different question than the ethical question of is it right or wrong, right? So the question is, I'm standing here, and I know someone over there is about to mutilate this child, right? Am I willing to go use force to go kick in the door, show up with a rifle, um, and extract the child to keep the child from being mutilated, something like that? Um, and, and the answer, I think that's a difficult question because we are also told in Romans 13 that we have to be in submission to the civil authorities, and to do that would violate the civil law, right? And it's also ethically complicated because if it's not something I'm directly involved in, right, I'm not sure I can, and I'm not going to give you a definitive answer to this, by the way, because I think it's a difficult question. I'm just thinking it through. I don't think that I can necessarily hold myself responsible for physically righting all the world's wrongs by force, right? Otherwise, I wouldn't last very long, right? I could sit down and make a list of, you know, countless evils that are being perpetrated at any given moment that I might feel an obligation to go, you know, use some some degree of force to go correct, right? So I'm, I'm not sure that's a an, an ethic that we could live by necessarily, you know? I think if someone were trying to compel me to participate in it, or do it to one of my children, or someone who was in my immediate sphere, that might be a different question. But the idea that someone is about to do something evil half a world away, do I have to get on a plane and go, you know, employ force to stop it? I, that doesn't strike me as, a, as an ethical principle which is workable. But I, I don't really have a good answer for this, so that's just me thinking about it out loud. Does anyone else have a comment on that? Uh, yes, sir. Well said, well said. So the comment was that, um, you know, this is ultimately the job of the civil manager who's given the sword and not in vain. To, and we should try to work the civil manager to rectify those things. Yes, in the back. 
Well said. No, let me, let me summarize that, and then I'll go to, go to the pastor. So the comment from, from Mrs. Bullock was that um, we can look at the life of Christ himself and know that he, when he took on flesh, he lived in an era when there was great wrong being perpetrated around him, and he did not personally go and redress it all. And therefore, and it's not the role of the church in, in this present age to employ the sword, as it may have been during the, the, the time of you know, ethnic Israel being the God's kingdom on earth was identified with that one particular nation. Yeah, I think I generally agree with that, and that's going to set us up very nicely for the problem of evil that we're going to deal with in just a minute. Mr. Bullock. So the uh, excellent comment from the pastor was that if we read the rest of Romans 13, it tells us that the, it is a civil magistrate who's given the sword for the redress of wrongs, and that we as Christians need to be very careful uh, about any suggestion that that's what we ought to personally do, is taking up literal swords and using force to redress wrongs. Okay, let's, let's, let's press on. Um, so, the problem of evil. Got some questions about this last week. I'm going to try to give you something on it this morning that will hopefully be helpful. So, what do I mean by the problem of evil? You know, I, uh, I was looking for material on this, and I, uh, I was Googling around. I go on Ligonier, and I find a talk by R.C. Sproul from 1998 titled The Problem of Evil. And I thought, oh, great, this will be helpful. And I paid $8, and I listened to it for 45 minutes. And what I heard was a very nice sermon on the problem of Christian suffering. That's not what I mean. Right. The question of why do Christians suffer, um, different question that we can take for another day. The question here is, you know, I, I summarize it here. This was from Greg Bonson. Is God impotent or is he a sadist? If you want the, the capsule pithy, you know, Bonson-esque summary of it, that, that, that's it. Or to spell it out a little more, if God is real and if he's all-powerful, then why is there evil in the world? Right? This is a very common objection that will be raised by the skeptic. As, as over against the Christian conception of God. And, you know, if you think about it, it'll probably have you scratching your head. What do you say? All right, we're going to end up saying something about, you know, the sovereignty of God, but, um, but let's talk about how we're going to do this in a helpful way. Um, first, we're going to show that the problem of evil is not a logical problem for the Christian. This is not some kind of gotcha from a rational logic standpoint. Right? It, doesn't, it doesn't blow up our argument to where it doesn't work as a matter of logic. Um, it doesn't expose some kind of critical flaw in the Christian worldview. Um, what it does for many people is create an emotional and psychological problem. And for that, we do not necessarily have a, a completely satisfactory answer. But that comes down to the nature of our creatureliness and our role relative to God. And we're going to deal with that here. So, first of all, I... Um, my first place I looked was I pulled out Greg Bonson's book on Van Til to see what he had to say. And he has this in a footnote. It's a very long footnote. Um, I, but I thought it was amazing that it was shoved in a footnote. But I'm going to read you the whole thing because I think it's really helpful. And then we're going to break it down and we're going to look at each one of the things Dr. Bonson has to say on the subject. So let's read it. In my experience, the most popular argument urged against Christianity is the problem of evil. Unbelievers declare that the Christian worldview is logically inconsistent since it holds that God is powerful enough to prevent evil, that God is good, good enough not to want evil, and yet that evil exists. Suppose one asks, how can you believe in a God who permits child molestation to take place? The believer and the unbeliever apparently agree that molesting innocent children is morally outrageous and objectively wrong. But Van Til would ask what reference point, that is final standard authority, is necessary to make this moral judgment intelligible. 
Surely no autonomous or unbelieving presupposition or fundamental outlook will suffice, since each one, upon analysis, reduces to subjectivism in ethics, in which case child molestation could not be condemned as absolutely or objectively immoral, but simply taken as generally not preferred. Notice also that the usual presentations of the apparent contradiction within Christian premises about God omit the equally important premise that God always has a morally sufficient reason for the suffering and evil he foreordains. With the addition of that biblical premise, there is no logical problem of evil left. Everyone struggles psychologically to take God on his word here, to be sure. But that is different from there being an intellectual incongruity within the Christian faith. Unbelievers will not give up their psychological resistance to that premise until God offers his rationale for evil to them for inspection and approval, which is subtle but incontestable evidence that they beg the question, holding that God cannot be proven to be the final authority until they are first acknowledged as the final authority. Uh, That's pages 525 and 526 of Bonson's book in footnote 127. Um, That was a lot altogether. It answers the question very well, but it's a lot crammed together, so we're going to break it down and we're going to talk about each one of those pieces, um, and hopefully we'll find that helpful. So first, the the problem of evil. I gave you this earlier, right? The premises. God is all-powerful and God is perfectly good, therefore why is there evil in the world? Let's add in the third premise that Dr. Bonson has given us, and that is that God is all-powerful, God is perfectly good, and God always has a morally sufficient reason for the suffering and evil he foreordains. Now, I'll just point out to you that this really just follows out of number two, right? This is just sort of of logically flows, right? That if he's all-powerful and all-good and there's evil, and we believe those first two are true, then, you know, this sort of goes with it, right? God always has a morally sufficient reason for the suffering and evil he foreordains, otherwise he wouldn't be good right? So we, once, we, once we throw that in, we don't really have a logical problem of evil, right? We could say, once those three things are true, then when we say, but evil, but child molestation, that's not a problem, because number three, God always has some morally sufficient reason for the suffering and evil that he ordains, okay? So it's not like this is some kind of logic bomb that blows us up. It's not some ultimate gotcha where we, we no longer have a coherent you know, thing to say, a true theology, right, theology of, of God himself, it doesn't, it doesn't blow that up, right? But as, as he tells us, the skeptic is going to find that unsatisfying. Well, why is he going to find that unsatisfying? Um, because, well, one, psychologically, he doesn't like it. Well, I, I can't believe in a God that lets all these bad things, things happen. Okay, well, he believes in you, sir. And he, and he, and he does, in fact, exist. So let's, let's dispense with that, and let's talk about whether he's really there. But, but what, what Monson says, and he's right, is that the skeptic really wants to know, well, what's God's reason? When, when, when asking, you know, why did these bad things happen? Why do children get blown up by landmines, right? He's asking, sort of asking that question to God, right? saying, God, you know, justify yourself, right? And wants to be the ultimate authority as to whether God is sufficiently good. So what this is really saying is, I want to be the judge of God. Well, the concept of the Christian God, the concept of the God of the Bible, does not allow for that. 
right? The God that we propose, the God that we believe in, is our creator. We are his creatures. We do not get to judge him. If we set up a concept of God where we get to judge God, well, that's not the Christian God. That might be somebody else's idea of a God. That might be a little God you keep in the shoebox on your, on your closet shelf. But that's not the Christian God. And that ultimately, remember how we started this class today? What's your ultimate authority? Well, if you're, if you're, if you're positing that you get to judge God, then what's your ultimate authority? You are. And, when, and, and Greg Bonson said that it begs the question. That's the question that it begs. Right? What you're saying, you're, you're just rejecting out of hand the idea that there's a God who's bigger than you, who you don't get to judge. So what, about, what does the Scripture say? Um, I was uh, watching a bunch of stuff on the Internet yesterday, getting ready for this, and I ran across some really interesting references to the end of Job. Now, we do not have time for me to read you all of this, so I highly encourage you to go home and read it yourselves. But if you, op- if you have a Bible, open it up, and... You all know the basic story of Job, right? You know, he, J- 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 Satan and God are having this conversation, and Satan says to, to God, well, God, you know, Job, Job is only a good man. He only believes in you because you've blessed him so much. So, so ultimately, the blessings are taken away. All of his children are killed. He loses all his possessions. He ends up, you know, sick and covered in sores, and he's sitting there talking to his three friends. Well, So that all, that all happens. And then at the end, after this, very, this rather long and helpful book, we get to chapter 31, and here, Job is kind of making this sort of final complaint. And it, it's sort of, it's long, but essentially what he's, he's saying is, you know, what have I done wrong, God? Judge me. How, how could you do this to me? It's all very rhetorical, right? Um, and if you pick up, I put verses 4 through 6 up here on the screen, but the whole chapter is really helpful. Um, I'll, I'll start with verse 1. I've made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? What would be my portion from God above and my heritage from the Almighty on high? Is not calamity for the unrighteous and disaster for the workers of iniquity? Does not he see my ways and number all my steps? If I've walked with falsehood and my foot has hastened to deceit, let me be weighed in a just balance and let God know my integrity. If my step has turned aside from the way and my heart has gone after my eyes and if any spot has stuck to my hands, then let me sow and another eat. And let what grows for me be rooted out. And he goes on for quite a while with these same sort of rhetorical questions, all driving to the point of, God, judge me, I haven't done anything wrong. And he's ultimately fundamentally questioning the, the justice of God, right? And then it sort of goes back and forth, and there's then a very long speech by Elihu and that goes on for several chapters. And then when we get to 38, right, God answers back. Um, to Job. And it goes, all of 38 and 39 is the speech that Yahweh is making back to Job. Um, and I put a few verses of it up here on the screen, starting with verse 2 of chapter 38. Uh, or verse 1, it says, Then Yahweh answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? And at number 3, um, the ESV has said, Dress for action like a man. The uh, the older translation would say, gird up your loins. Um, I will question you and make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone? 
when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. And he proceeds to go on and give this sort of scathing indictment, the summary of which is, I made the world and I made you. Who are you to answer back to God? Um, it's beautiful. Please go home and read it. I, I, just, I would take the whole class if I, if I read it all to you today. Um, and so then we, in verse 40, right, chapter 40, chapter 40 starts, um, and, and God is answering. He says, And Yahweh said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered Yahweh and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Right? So Job is being rebuked. And then, you know, God then goes on again with more of the same that goes all the way through the end of 41. And then in 42, we see Job's repentance. Um, Then Job answered Yahweh and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak, I will question you, and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. You want a real answer to the problem of evil? That's the real answer. The answer is the sovereignty of God. The answer is you are a creature, and who are you to judge God? He is good, he is holy, and he's all-powerful, and he's ordained or things according to his purpose. All right. The other argument that we must never forget when we're dealing with a problem of evil is back to our transcendental argument for God. Remember, the skeptic's argument looks like this. Christians claim that God is perfectly good and all-powerful enough to prevent evil, but there's evil in the world. Therefore, the Christian claims about God are false, right? That's essentially how it, how it goes. So when that skeptic says to you, but there's evil in the world, now that you've had this class, what should be going off in the back of your head? How do you know? And what do you mean by evil? In order for evil to be a meaningful concept, there has to be some reference. There has to be something to tell us what is the good, right? If evil is the opposite of good or the absence of good, what is the good? What is the evil? How do you know? Right? It requires some standard by which to measure what is evil, right? Um, Otherwise, you know, one person's perceived evil might be somebody else's perceived good, right? There, there, there are, ab- we were talking about child molestation earlier, there are absolutely people in this country right now that are actively advocating to legalize child molestation, who think that it is virtuous and meritorious and ought to be encouraged. And I think at the time Greg Bonson wrote that, it was, that probably wasn't the case, but it is now. So why are they wrong and you right? By what authority, sir? And absent some, that transcendental authority, there's no standard by which to judge. So you're going to stand here and deny God based upon the idea that there's evil in the world, and without God, you can't even define what evil is. Remember what I told you the first week, the quote from Van Til about the two people sitting in the room breathing the air, arguing about whether the air exists? Well, that's right back where we are. 
Because without God, you can't even define evil. All right. So, that bring, that's the end of my section on the problem of evil. Let me take any questions or comments you have about that, and then we'll deal with some tweets. Mr. Jones. So, the, the comment from Mr. Jones was that perhaps what the skeptic is really asking is, why does God allow evil, and is there ultimate justice? And those are two questions, right? And I think we, we've dealt with the first one, which is God has a morally sufficient reason for that evil which he allows. And we don't know why we're not the judge of God. He's chosen. He hasn't revealed everything to us, right? And before the class, the pastor mentioned to me uh, Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things are the Lord. Um, you know, he hasn't revealed everything to us. He's given us all that we need to know, that his revelation is sufficient, but it's not comprehensive. And that's just the, just, just the nature of it. As to justice, well, yeah, we know there's justice, right? Read the back of the book. Read Revelation 19 and 20. It's coming. Yes, ma'am, Ms. Miller. Well, that's certainly something you could say. Why the, so the question is, would it be excessively confrontational to say, why do you allow evil? Um, I mean, that's certainly a road you can go down, especially if you're trying to get into the gospel and say that, you know, you're a sinner, right? But I think before you can do that, you, you say, well, what is evil? Right? I'd, I'd lay a couple of foundational steps first and say, well, what is it you think is evil? By what standard? And then whatever standard they articulate, well, do you perfectly keep the standard that you've articulated for yourself? And if not, what are you going to do about it? That, that, that's a, a route you could take, right? Um, anybody else? Yes, Mr. So the uh, comment from the pastor is that if you want to deal some good material on the psychological component of evil, he recommends the Brothers Karamazov, Chapter 4, titled The Grand Inquisitor, which deals with the psychological problem of evil. I have not read it, so I can't comment on it any further, but we'll put it down on the tape. Yes, sir? Well, okay, so how do we, how do we understand that God is sovereign, that he foreordains all that comes to pass, but is not the author of evil? Um, the answer is, I don't know. Short answer. Uh, in other words, so, some things are simply a mystery. This, what I said earlier about how his revelation is sufficient but not comprehensive, those are all true statements. They're all in our confessional standards, and we all believe them to be true. Or at least I believe them to be true. I swore an oath before God that I believe them to be true. But can I reconcile them for you? No, I cannot. Perhaps someone else can, but a God's revelation just hasn't extended that far. Right? It's a, it's a, it's, it's a mystery. It's a, it's a tension we have to deal with, and we hope to find out when we get to glory. Anybody else want to answer that? All right. <laughs> I didn't think so. All right. <laughs> uh, yes, Mrs. Bullock. Very, very well said. So the, the, the two comments from Mr. and Mrs. Bullock was that, um, first, the question of, does the question of evil expose someone who is concerned or asking whether God really cares about them or about anyone. And the um, response from the pastor that um, the problem of evil comes into the sharpest focus on the cross at Calvary, right, when the Lord of glory is, is crucified. Um, and I think that's, that's very well said. So, yes. So the comment that um, we first see evil rear its head in the garden, and if God had no tolerance for evil, he could have simply wiped it out. And that's certainly true, right? And, and, but it's, it's still raises ask the question, God chose then, right? When he confronts Adam and Eve, he could, have, he could have chosen to just wipe them out, but he didn't. But we still don't know the why, right? We know that from what we learned this morning, God had a morally sufficient reason for allowing Adam and Eve to walk out of the garden. <laughs> because he knew the cross. Absolutely. But he, but he tolerated a lot of evil in the meantime. So um, it's a good question. Yes, sir. 
uh, well said. So the comment that um, ultimately we know that God does what he does for his glory, um, and that does give us a at least partially satisfactory answer. I don't know that that's the most useful apologetic answer, but, um, but, <laughs> but, but it's helpful. All right, let's, uh, let's deal with a few of these um, atheist tweets to, to wrap up our class today. We've got about uh, eight minutes left. Um, so the, the first one we have up here has got a picture of underdog, and it says, there's no such thing as sin, the sinful nature, comma, original sin. Sin is a fictional concept designed to make people feel weak. The Bible is nothing more than a collection of campfire stories and legends passed down for generations before people finally wrote them down. All right, gosh, what will we do with this? There's no such thing as sin. Sin is a fictional concept. Uh, well, there's a lot of things we could do with that. We could always just ask, well, you're, you're, you're making some factual statements there. Um, how do you know? What's your basis for that? Right? You, could, you could always do that. Right? You can always default to that. But you might say, okay, well, what do you mean? How do you understand the concept of sin, sir? You uh, say, you know, the, the Christian concept of sin means, you know, violating the law of God, right? Any one of conformity to or transgression of the law of God. Um, and so, do you believe in God? Do you believe he has a law? Well, no, I don't believe in it. I'm, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God. Okay. Well, do you believe that there's any universal moral standard? Any right and wrong? And you get yes or no. And if you get yes, well, then what's your basis for that? If you get no, well, really? So, this is back to where we were earlier. So, you think anybody can do whatever they want? So the concept of right and wrong, of doing good or doing evil, is that what you mean when you say that there's no sin? That there's no doing good or doing evil? That everything we do is just morally neutral and meaningless? Is that what you mean? And is that really how you live your life? Is that, more importantly, is that how you want everyone else to live his life? (laughs) And the answer is almost certainly no, right? Um, And then we get this statement here at the bottom about the Bible. The Bible is nothing more than a collection of campfire stories and legends passed down for generations before people finally wrote them down. Oh, okay. So you think the Bible was based on some oral tradition before it was written down? How do you know? know? Right. (laughs) Were you there? (laughs) Was there a documentary photographer? (laughs) I mean, (laughs) you know, um, yeah, that's, that's, you know, you're just repeating something somebody told you, but you have no basis for it. And I find it interesting that you're criticizing Christianity for being based on faith, based on believing things that you can't personally see, feel, and touch, but yet, you seem to be making some very strong statements based upon something that happened thousands of years ago that you purport to have definitive knowledge of. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. Here's another one. Uh, all morality is subjective. Even if you believe your morality comes from a God, God's morality is still that God's subjective opinion. There's a couple of possessive apostrophes missing here, but I, I think that's what we mean. Um, Really? Okay, what are we going to do here? Well, so first, we've learned how to deal with all morality as subjective, right? Because what's that equivalent to? Somebody. If all morality is subjective, what is that the logical equivalent of? There is no morality. Really? So you think there is no morality? And I've already told you how to deal with this this morning, right? Then just go ask the questions. Really? So everybody can do whatever he wants? Is that how you want to live? Is that how you want me to live? Well, no, that's just silly. Um, And then, even if you believe your morality comes from a God, and I do, God's morality is still that, God's subjective opinion. Okay, so what are some things that would have to be true about God in order for that to be the case? Well, to start with, and this goes back to what we were talking about a few minutes ago, that's not the Christian God. The God that I posit to you, the God that you know exists, is not a God who is the equivalent of humans in terms of the value of his, his opinions. 
So that might be your, your idea of God, but that's not the true God. The true God is your creator. Let's go right back to that stuff in Job. And you, who are you to answer back to him? So if, you, if, you, if you're going to question that my conception of God exists, that's one conversation. But what you're proposing here is a straw man God. That's not the God I believe in. That's not the God of the Bible. That's just something you made up. And, oh, by the way, what's your authority for that proposition? All right, this one's a little smaller. Um, there's two tweets here. I can't quite tell which one is replying to which, but we'll deal with them both. And I, I redacted this slightly because it had some, some profane words in it. Um, the first one says, God does not blank exist. Um, I've always been an atheist as I was born into an atheist family, and thank blank for that. But, and it's a typo, it says, but in recent years, I've got further to the point where I even get annoyed slash sometimes angry when people mention their belief in God, and I think they are stupid, especially when I combat them and they say I'm lost. I don't know if I'm justified in this hatred. Could you say I'm not, but I don't really care, just, thoughts I, just thought I'd give my thoughts? At one level, I can't understand why you would write that and put it on the internet, um, but well, let's let's say, okay. So, just, so I'm thankful that I'm an atheist, and I get annoyed and angry when people mention their belief in God, and when they tell me that I'm lost. So, what do you think's going on there? If God doesn't exist, then and you know it, and you're sure, then why would you care if somebody else talks about him, right? <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so what you what you this is what you would say, but what you know. If you're sitting across the table or sitting at the bar with somebody who says this, the first thing you've got to know is this is a guy who's got a conscience, right? This guy's not as far gone as he thinks he is, right? Because the Lord is working on him. He knows God exists, and he's struggling with it. So I want to pray for this brother, right? And I'm going to try to talk to him and say, okay, well, you say you were born into an atheist family, and you seem to say that you believe God doesn't exist. Well, how do you know? What, what leads you to that conclusion? What is it about the nature of reality and your experience that leads you to say that? And then you can make any one of the moves that we've studied in this class so far, right? You can go, go to arguing for morality. If I, if I haven't convinced you by now that arguing for morality and making a transcendental argument that way is a useful technique and one which can be used to expose the irrationality and absurdity of the unbeliever's worldview, then I've just failed, right? But that, that would obviously be something you could do here. Let's look at this next tweet that I think is a response. It says, religion causes harm, granting amoral people an excuse to lie about being normal. Like, oh, I could kill you, but then I'd go to hell. That's not the reason you shouldn't murder someone. If you need a sky wizard to tell you that, then there's something wrong with you. Further, a lot of religions allow sinners in if they just accept ex-God. Imagine all the death row inmates that got their last rites. They're all going to heaven, too. And then it goes on, but I didn't capture it in the screenshot. All right, well, what are we going to do with this? Well, I mean, gosh, there's a wealth of opportunity here. Um, first, first sentence, religion causes harm. Okay, well, what are we going to say? What do you mean by harm? Right? And, and you'll get something like, well, there's all sorts of bad things, or, you know, priests molesting children, or social control or, you know, any, whatever they say, you know, okay, they no doubt can identify something bad that was caused by some religion somewhere. Like, I think we can all agree with that. Um, people murdering others in the name of Islam or whatever, um, and say, okay, well, what do you mean by harm? You mean evil? Wrong? 
by what standard? What do you mean by that? And what are you using to define what's right and wrong? And we see that further down, right? Granting amoral people an excuse to lie about being normal. I'm not even sure I know what that means. Um, people, who have, people who hold to no moral beliefs or people who don't follow any moral beliefs and then lie about being normal. I, I'm not, I have to ask more questions and say, what do you mean by that? Let's flush that one out. Like, oh, I could kill you, but then I'd go to hell. And he says, well, that's not the reason you shouldn't murder someone. Really? Well, what is the reason that I shouldn't murder someone? Right? If I'm not restrained by the law of God, what, what's the other reason? And what's implicit is, I, I'm a good person even though I don't believe in God. I have moral standards and ethical standards by which I live my life. Really? Well, what's the basis for those? Let's talk about it. And we're right back to arguing for morality. You see how this works? And we I mean, just carry on from there. All right, I'm now out of time. Uh, Next week, we will wrap this up. Thank you for your attention.